If there's one day of the year where you should be on guard for pranks, hoaxes, and hijinks, it's April 1st. So we thought for today's April Fool's Day, please explain, we should look into subjects that have been the source of hoaxes and fakes, but whose allure has captured the imagination and energy of thousands of people around the world who want to know whether Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and other paranormal creatures have any basis in truth. Joining us now are Lauren Coleman, one of the world's leading cryptozoologists and director of the International Cryptology Museum in Portland, Maine, and Joe Gisandi, a professor of journalism at Eastern Illinois University, author of the book Monster Trek, The Obsessive Search for Bigfoot. Welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. Hi there. And if any of our listeners want to join in on the conversation, our number... The number to call is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Lauren, to start off, what is cryptozoology? Well, cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown animals. It's actually a very zoological way to discover new species. Of course, the media would like to talk about it as only dealing with the Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, Bigfoot, but it's everything from the discovery of the coelacanth, the okapi, the giant squid. So it's really a way to look for new animals, and that's uh, the essence of what cryptozoology is. So it intersects with orthodox zoology? Oh, very much so. Uh, many of the scientists, uh, anthropologists, zoologists that are involved in the field really are uh, at the frontier lines of new zoology. In other words, it used to be during the Victorian era called romantic zoology or exotic zoology because among the indigenous peoples, the encountering of new species was always made fantastic. So we try to look through those tales, those uh, traditions, find the real evidence, and then classify, confirm, verify new animals. You address the subject of Bigfoot's existence in your website, writing, many Bigfoot-type creatures have been killed, caught, or examined around the world. Can you talk more about that? Because uh, I haven't seen any pictures of dead Bigfoots. Or is it Big well, Feet? No, it's just the plural Big Feet. A Bigfoot is Bigfoot. Uh. So... Um, most of the tales and traditions about the killing of Bigfoot, Yeti, Amas, uh, usually happen during wartime, during uh, conflicts. The bodies are burned. The bodies uh, disappear. Of course, uh, we only need to look back to 1902, and one of these Bigfoot-type creatures was actually killed and brought into science, and today we call them mountain gorillas. So it depends upon your frame of reference. As soon as any of these uh, animals are classified and verified, then they become part of zoology, and cryptozoology loses them as a cryptid. And where, so the, when and where are uh, they generally found? Well, cryptids um, are found all over the world. Usually, of course, they're in the most inaccessible areas, wilderness areas, the uh, bottom of the oceans, uh, top of mountains, and, and different places like that. I think we have to be very careful because, of course, if you talk to some of the Bigfooters around the country, 
they say that Bigfoot is seen in every state. Uh, more logically, we know that's a cultural Bigfoot. And the psychology of Bigfoot hunting is that a lot of people want to believe. We actually are very suspicious of the debunkers and the true believers. As critical thinkers, we have to really understand that Bigfoot aren't under every bed and, and you know, and, uh, under every trailer. They really probably are only verifiable in the Pacific Northwest. Joe, are you one of the skeptics? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I approach this a, a lot different than a lot of other people have gone into it. I, I approach it more journalistically, where uh, I've always been fascinated by it. I mean, when I grew up in New Jersey and my mom used to get, you know, the, the New York Times and the Star-Ledger, and but also the National Enquirer. So as a kid, I was, you know, reading all those papers and wondering about it, and, and the, the whole Bigfoot fascination has, has kept with me for years. So I really was um, – what intrigues me the most is why people search for Bigfoot, not whether or not Bigfoot exists at all. I wanted to know why uh, – you know, my book talk I, – I went out and trekked with people all across the country who were uh, – I went on expeditions and – and looked at their methods and talked to them as individuals, and I was looking for really that. That's the angle that I'm most fascinated with. And you discovered that Bigfoot sightings come from all sorts of people, often highly reputable ones. Did that surprise you? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, Well, don't it, it, flying saucer sightings often come from highly reputable people? To tell you the truth, I, I, I can't talk to that. I just don't, I don't have an expertise on that at all. Um, as a matter of fact, as far as cryptozoology, Lauren who knows a lot more about that. But the thing about people for Bigfoot, I've, I've talked to people who are principals of schools. I've talked to people who are CEOs of banks. Um, and, of course, you talk to people who, you know, don't have much education and do everything like that. It, it goes all the way across it. And um, if, if you're to believe in Bigfoot um, and, and that they're everywhere, you know, all kinds of people go camping and hiking and things like that, too. So um, I'm not I'm not really surprised by that so much. I think most of the people I talk to are surprised because I think people who who think about Bigfoot believe that the people who are searching for Bigfoot are people who are very low IQs and, and, and just can't speak properly, and that's just not the fact. You also say that witnesses have nothing to gain but a lot to lose and that some of the people you profiled in your book were rather wary around you. Uh, some were, but... I'm always amazed as a journalist the things that people will tell me knowing it's on the record. Um, and um, the one person who was kind of wary the whole time was Don Young. Don Young, who's a uh, who's an outdoorsman up in Wisconsin, was so scared at some point he was afraid to go back into the woods. But um, this is a guy when you're walking around that he can identify the difference probably between a, a raccoon and a squirrel and all these other different things on there. So. Uh, a few were wary, and I had one or two people ask that they not be in the book because of their professions, which I respected, of course. Um, but most of them were more than willing to because they were pleased that I was focusing on the fact they were searching for it, not whether or not I was trying to debunk or, or promote that Bigfoot exists. Lauren, has it been your experience that many people who discuss Bigfoot sightings feel ostracized by the larger community? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, many people, uh, their marriages break up, they lose jobs, they're seen as crazy. Uh, so on the one hand, you have people that are very resistant to talk about it outside a small circle of people they trust, and yet, as Joe experienced, 
so much is happening inside of them emotionally that if someone comes along and says, well, you talk to me about your sighting, that person then becomes a lightning rod for all of that pent-up uh, energy that they have not been able to unload onto anyone else. So you have that dichotomy within any witness. They know that it's very risky to talk about it, but yet they definitely want to because nobody has really verified for them that they're part of reality. Haven't they formed Bigfoot support groups? Well, well I, what I document in all of my books uh, is that what has really occurred is a whole social network really started coming about in the 1980s in which uh, just like with ecology, there's a real crypto tourism that's developed. There's uh, support groups and social networks where people get together and they discuss the uh, Bigfoot sightings, for instance, where they have conferences now. That's really something that's only happened within the last 30 years. You wanted to add to that, Joe? Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, like Don Young, who was his his livelihood was to be an outdoor guide up in the northern woods of Wisconsin, and the moment he uh, told people that he had seen a, a Bigfoot, people thought he was crazy. And of course, who wants to go in the woods with someone who has a gun in the middle of nowhere? So people, he lost his entire livelihood for this, for something that he believes this actually happened to him, and uh, he was willing to put that on the line for it. And uh, a lot of people. Are afraid to do that. Although I wonder, you know, maybe Lauren can talk more about this. But I wonder if the show Finding Bigfoot has made it more mi mainstream and has made people less disinclined to talk about it. I don't know if that's starting to change at all. Has that show had much of an impact, Lauren? It definitely has an impact, uh, and Joe's right about that. Uh, Finding Bigfoot's been on TV for nine years, and it basically has the same formula. They talk to individuals, they come forward, and then they go out, and they don't find Bigfoot. So it comes back again. It's, it's a formula that works for TV and entertainment, but it's not really good science uh, because they're continuing to do something over and over that fails. Well, that's uh, uh, Matt Moneymaker's show, and we want to talk a bit more about Matt Moneymaker a little later in this conversation. But right now, uh, I want to remind our listeners that my guests are Joe Gassandi, professor of journalism at Eastern Illinois University, author of the book Monster Trek, The Obsessive Search for Bigfoot, and Lauren Coleman, one of the world's leading cryptozoologists and director of the International Cryptology Museum in Portland, Maine. It's this is WNY... Cryptozoology. Oh, cryptozoology, okay. Yeah, so I got yeah. it right the first time, and then... Uh, yeah. <laughs> And this is WMYC and WMYC.org. I'm Leonard Lope. We're taking your calls at 212-433-9692, or you can write to us on our show page at WMYC.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And J.P. O'Neill from Westchester, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I, you have talked a lot about Bigfoot, but we haven't talked a lot about sea serpents. Well, we'll I'm... get to that, but you, why don't you <laughs> no, introduce well, us I'm to the, the idea? I'm the author of a book about the great New England sea serpent, and so I just wanted to, you know, check in. and. Is it like the Loch Ness Monster? The descriptions of it are fairly similar to the Loch Ness Monster. Um, it's uh, described as being between 50 and 75 feet typically in length. It looks um, like a snake, small head, 
it's not dangerous. Um, it, it tends to um, flee if it's confronted, but there are a couple of occasions when it was known to look into boats or follow fishing boats. And this is off the the Atlantic coastline? Yep, on the, in the Gulf of Maine. It's usually uh, referred to as the Gloucester Sea Serpent, but it's the sightings go up to uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland and down to Cape Cod. Lauren and Joe, do you want to uh, jump in on this discussion? Well, well, let me just let me just say, June's book is fantastic. It's about the great sea serpent, and I've studied uh, that great sea serpent off the Atlantic coast for a long time. In fact, I, I coined the name Cassie for our local version of the sea serpent in Casco Bay and in the Gulf of Maine. Her book is fantastic. Thank you so much for Thank calling you, us. <laughs> yeah. And we'll we'll get to Nessie in a little while. Let's take another call. Alex from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I was wondering, uh, obviously, in the legend of Bigfoot, uh, vary from region to region, state to state. Uh, examples of how you know the geography or culture distorts the legend, and and on the other end of the spectrum, uh, what they all share in common. Well, the things I, I found and is that. Uh, like I lived in Florida for about 24 years, and down there they call it the skunk ape because of the uh, the smell of it. It smells somewhat like a skunk or sulfurs and things like that. Isn't um, Florida where most of the sightings take place in this country? Well, you know, if you look at, I don't, I don't know that there's a, you can really look at a scientific database, but the the best one I've seen is the the BFRO one. You're talking about Matt Moneymaker, the Bigfoot Research Organization. There's a lot of scientific problems with it and what have you, but. Um, if you look on there, Florida is ranked in the top, you know, five or six or something like There's that. There's a Pacific I, I, Northwest as well. And, and ironically, Ohio is like number three or four. Um, and, there's, and there's also some politics in there. But, yeah, Florida, as you're right, has a, a great deal of them. And, is uh, John Kasich considered one of these monsters? Is that <laughs> what you're trying to say? Um, no, but maybe some of the other candidates. <laughs> Who knows? Um, <laughs> They're, uh, but in Florida, they, I, I, from the research I've done, I don't know what, what Leonard, uh, Lauren knows, but they seem to be a little bit smaller than the Pacific Northwest. And in some cases, the ones in the South, in particular, the stories coming out of there seem to think that seem to uh, indicate that they're more aggressive. Now, Lauren, have you? What do you think? Uh, well, I've done a lot of research and writing on this, and the whole skunk ape, booger, honey mile. Honey Island, Swamp Monster, the whole southern area has a smaller chimpanzee-like creature that goes down on all fours. It smells, as Joe said. Very different from the Pacific Northwest Bigfoot. It's more like your peace-loving, upright gorilla. In Ohio and in the Midwest, some of the reports there certainly talk about a more aggressive eastern variety of Bigfoot that tends to really reflect the fact that if there are any Bigfoot there, they're so and they're in areas that are so crowded with people and dogs mm. that uh, they tend to really overreact in a violent way. So uh, Bigfoot can be very much divided into three types, although I've never thought that the southern skunk ape creatures are really they're more like an anthropoid than a Bigfoot down there. But it, wouldn't it be more likely to find a creature like Bigfoot in a swampy area or in a, in a foresty area than in a, a farm area like Ohio? 
Yeah, well, well I, the, I, think, the, I think there's two parts to, to, to play a part there. One is there is a lot of woods in, in the Ohio area. Um, I, I also wonder, like my where I'm living in uh, Illinois, the number of reports that are on the BFRO database are significantly higher when I started the book, and I think that's because of ambitious or aggressive researchers who are, who are charting everything. So I think Ohio has a whole lot because there's a, an abundance of Bigfoot research organizations there. I think that plays a part. I don't know if that's the only part. Well, let's take another call. I, Brian from Brooklyn. Uh, are there any big feet, Bigfoots in Brooklyn, Brian? Yes, there, there, there are Bigfoots in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> My, myself being one. I actually... Um, I'm not a, a, a believer or non-believer, but I've performed and done hoaxing as Bigfoot in the past, and I always find it interesting to get a perspective from now, What do you mean who, by that? You, do you put um, on a costume? You go to Times yeah. Square? No. Um, I started out doing, uh, you know, um, I guess hoaxes in South Florida, um, upstate New York, different parts of rural areas. Um, and was getting feedback from experts in the paranormal field. And part of that I used for different art projects. Um, and I eventually wound up doing one in uh, Prospect Park, which was widely widely um, distributed through the media. Um, and I thought, um, uh, through the process, I talked to a lot of different types of Bigfoot people, but I've been basically performing as Bigfoot um, as part of one of my art projects. So, can, so Lauren and Joe, do you think that some of the Bigfoot sightings are really just uh, acts of performance art? I, I, yes, I don't know. If the, I don't know if the, yeah, go ahead, Lauren. Definitely. Uh, the way I see it is, uh, about 1% of all Bigfoot reports have definitely been linked to hoaxes. Performance art is certainly what does happen. Uh, but those 1% are probably about 60% of what the media likes to talk about. So it's a small percentage of the actual field, but it's certainly the one that gets the most attention. And, Joe, Joe you're critical of journalists who write about Bigfoot. Why do you say that they don't act professionally? Well, not all. I mean... Most of the stories that I've seen, it's, it's really an opportunity. You know, you're in the newsroom and you're writing all these hardcore stories and suddenly you get thrown, he'll go do something on Bigfoot. And the first reaction, I think, for a lot of us is, hey, let's, let's have some fun with this. You know, it's, uh, let's, let's talk to these people. And I, I don't think that um, it, it's considered... I, I think if you were to write a serious piece about it in some places that you might even be scoffed at for something like that. I think that there's, I've seen a little bit better in, recently, but I just see so many TV reports in particular, but also some, some print stories that they're just there to have fun with it more than taking it seriously. And Lauren, what's your experience with how the media cover your work? Um, mostly they cover it uh, pretty straightforwardly now because... Uh, my approach uh, in popularizing and in writing the the 40 books that I've written is that, and I've been academic, uh, and so it's taken seriously. But that's why with your producer, for instance, I'm not familiar with your show, and I wanted to make sure that this wasn't a joke show, that this wasn't one of those wild morning shows where people make fun of Bigfoot, <laughs> because it certainly doesn't help the field. Uh, well... 
Some people have called this whole show as joke, but that's <laughs> another matter. Uh, we're going to take a little break here and come back to today's Please Explain, a look at cryptozoology. Uh, we'll talk about the Loch Ness Monster and some of the other creatures that have been sighted around the world uh, with Lauren Coleman and Joe Gasandi. Stay with us for more. We're back with Joe Gasandi, a professor of journalism at Eastern Illinois University, uh, author of Monsters Trek, The Obsessive Search for a Bigfoot, and Lauren Coleman, one of the world's leading cryptozoologists, author of a number of books on the, on the subject, and director of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. And we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And John from Paramus, New Jersey, you're on the air. On a much serious note, I don't hear much about the abominable snowman anymore. A Yeti, I think he's called, has they given up looking for him, or is just the conditions where he lived too impossible to find too many sightings? They Either of you want to tackle that? Still, oh, yeah. They're definitely still looking for that. I think a lot of the DNA studies have actually shown that there's probably some mysterious bears there that are confusing the picture. But uh, the Japanese, the Russians, and uh, Nepalese are still very much looking for it with an occasional American. So uh, the Yeti is still being pursued, but uh, not as Bigfoot gets all the publicity. Uh, we have uh, Mark from Scotch Plains, New Jersey, who's a witness. Hi. Hi, Hello, Mark. Sir. How are you? Uh, yes, I have uh, seen footprints. Uh, I've seen the poop, and it's as big as a brick. I've heard their cries both in Sussex County and South Jersey and also northeast Pennsylvania. And you think it was definitely Bigfoot and not a bear or some oh, other animal? yes. It's a it's a human footprint, but 15 inches long. I could put my entire fist in the heel, and let me just say... Well, it could have been uh, a basketball player walking in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually in a kind of a steep, loamy embankment. Uh, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a musician, so I would know the difference between somebody just singing, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and somebody on a far hill with very, very big lungs like just giving out this long note. Well, uh, have there been many sightings, uh, Joe and Lauren, in New Jersey? Well, you have the, the, the Jersey Devil, of course, down, down south in the Pine Barrens. Um, so from, from what I've researched, I haven't researched too much in depth. I'm sure Lauren has a little bit more, a little bit more in there. But something that's interesting with, with, evidence, with firsthand evidence when you're interviewing people is that I find it to be both uh, uh, the most compelling and the most useless at the same time, as police officers sometimes will tell you, is that people don't remember as much as they, as, as they think. And there was also another study about a year or two ago, by, I think it was Brian Sykes, he's at Oxford, 
and he asked people to send in DNA evidence, and he did some research on that. And um, all these people who thought that the, the, the poop or all these other different things might be evidence, um, according to his research at least, he did not find them to be anything but common animals in, in the United States. That's not to say, again, I'm, I'm not going to completely say there may not be anything out there, uh, but I think we, we tend to uh, sensationalize a lot of these things when we're talking about them. Haven't you profiled Melissa Hovey, one of the rare female Bigfoot researchers? Yeah, both Is this Melissa a male-dominated field? Yeah, uh, Melissa and, uh, unfortunately, Carol Ann Solomon, who passed away uh, several months ago, she used to go out in the middle of the green swamp in Florida, and she was uh, pretty am- She didn't get much publicity, but she did an amazing job as well. It, yeah, it's definitely male-dominated. Lauren, let's talk about the Patterson-Gimlin film. Can you give us a brief explanation for, for, for those listeners who are not familiar with it? Well, the Patterson-Gimlin film was uh, two individuals were going out in Northern California, they were doing some background filming of the areas where Bigfoot had been seen in Bluff Creek, California. They came around uh, a bend in uh, Bluff Creek October 20th, 1967, and they uh, took some footage of Bigfoot crossing the, the embankment, the sandbank there. It's a film that's been analyzed. It really is the Zabruder film of cryptozoology. But it's very it's grainy. Uh, isn't it open to quite a bit of interpretation? Well, actually not. It's one of the few films that you see that was actually taken on film. So the ability to enhance it, to uh, use cr- computer analysis, has been pretty good. So uh, a NASA scientist is actually... Uh, you know, blown it up, and you can see lots of details, which is much different than what we're getting, of course, from uh, the YouTube uh, generation now, which is a lot of grainy film, a lot of hoaxes, and really uh, nothing that's too worthwhile. Now, why would we be getting grainy film today? After all, people are out there with their their cell phones. Uh, they all have cameras uh, that are digital, and you get pretty clear pictures. I don't know why, other than there, it's grainy so that uh, people can't find out that uh, it's your performance artist with a suit on because you can see his tennis mm-hmm. shoe. You wanted to add to that, Joe? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed by that, too, because uh, a friend of mine here teaches the photojournalism and the things he can do with a camera. Um, sometimes he can do he does things better than people can do on their canyons and things like that. So um, I, I wonder how many times it's purposeful. But I think there's also user error. I think just sometimes we just are not really good at doing this. You know, we think we're really good at phones. And, and, and from a distance, cell phones aren't really good from a far distance, I don't think. We're going to take some more calls in just a moment, but I want to address uh, somebody who came up in the conversation earlier, Matt Moneymaker. That can't be his real name. It it, it is. It is? So is he related to to a man named Pennybaker or... uh, Lauren, are you sure of that? Because I've heard several people, and I don't have any evidence, so I can't say one way or the other. I was told that he had another name, and he had switched it. So I, I don't, I, I couldn't say one no, way or the other. No, actually, but heard... there's, if you ever watch some of the gambling, the poker shows on TV, mm-hmm. uh, he, he has a relative named Chris Moneymaker. Ah. Oh, does just... Okay. Joe, didn't he want you to sign a non-disclosure agreement when you met him? Yeah, well, actually, it was after. They made the mistake of not asking me beforehand. 
um, when I first started this project, I went out with them in then Oklahoma uh, in the Wachita Mountains, not far from where the Legend of Bobby Creek in Arkansas took place. And I talked with him, and, and, and he was, you know, he was very gracious with me and shared a lot of a lot of his uh, personal time and what have you. And then I saw him in North Carolina for one other expedition. I, I did two with them. Um, and afterwards, when I was trying to get some other information, they wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement that essentially gave them power to say no to anything whatsoever in, in the book. And, of course, as a journalist, there's no way I was going to allow something like that to happen. Um, subsequently, over the, last, over the two years in between there where I was writing the book, they sort of came around and, and, and he became less strident and they shared some other information. But, yeah, he's, uh, he, he, it, it, for a while there he was trying to get uh, uh, to force my hand. Now, you mentioned expeditions. Uh, those Bigfoot sighting expeditions can cost hundreds of dollars, uh, which, which would suggest that there might be an element of scamming in some cases. There's, there's a lot of belief in that. That uh, I think at the time it was $300 to go on one, and I had just started, and I said, okay, just to meet people, let's go out there. And I think it was $300, and then you don't have to pay any other times. And I don't know what the prices are now uh, because I, I didn't go to any other one of theirs. The other people I was talking, I went out with, uh, of course, it was smaller groups that didn't charge anything whatsoever. It was either me with, like, like I went out with Dr. Jeff Meldrum in, in Idaho and he and John Mazinski. And uh, when I was with Melissa and other people in Kentucky, no one was charging that. But I think if you charge for something like that, it, it sort of makes you think that there could be a scam involved. Lauren, do you go out on any of the expeditions? Well, I've been on expeditions since uh, 1960 doing these kinds of things, and I will never, you know, pay anyone to take me on their expedition, especially some, since some of the reports I've heard about how intriguingly there's always whoops and hollers and things going right. on around the campsite. So there's some suspicion on some of these expeditions. Let's take another call. Sandy from Somerset, New Jersey. A lot of calls Hi, from. Can you hear me? Yes, a lot of calls from New Jersey. Are there a lot of monsters out there, or is it just your governor? Actually, well, my governor is another story, but uh, um, I'm actually uh, asking about the Mothman, which has been yeah. Know, Let's talk about the all Mothman. Over the world, but in Point Pleasant, that's the big, uh, famous incident. But um, do you have any theories about what the Mothman is or was? Yeah, what about the Mothman? Well, Can you describe it? Well, I, yeah, I, I did a did a book on the Mothman. It's a six-foot-tall creature that was seen uh, in a concentrated way from 1966 through 67. And uh, the reports I got that it was just a large bird. And then a UFO investigator got involved named John Keel, and it became a mystical paranormal creature. And you'll know that the Mothman, Mothman Prophecies movie came out of that. So there's there's a real difference here. You've got to look at how some of these things starts out as an unknown creature or unknown animal, and then the occult, the UFOs, the paranormal gets all involved in it, and it really gets blown out of the water. A listener, Ryan, on Twitter asked, why haven't we found a corpse or a skeleton of Bigfoot? Well, some scientists will tell you that the same reason that you don't see many corpses of bears where um, when they're out there that uh, other animals eat them and they decompose and all the other things but um, you know honestly to tell you the truth I don't think anybody knows really anything about an animal that is as of yet is undiscovered but 
you know, I, I've heard theories, and Lauren, probably you have a lot more than I do. Uh, some of the people have mentioned that they're intelligent and they bury their dead so that you can't find them. Um, I, there's all kinds of different st- stories out there, but those are the two that have really jumped out for the people I've talked to. Uh, Lauren, you write about a theory that links lake monsters with certain latitudes. I would assume also that monster that we heard about earlier in the Atlantic. Uh, so are they all pretty much in the northern hemisphere? No, there's a, what are called the monster latitudes up north, uh, where the arboreal forests, the lakes that are in those are generally... But if you look exactly in the same latitudes in the southern hemisphere, hmm. you also have lake monsters across uh, South America and uh, those in Africa, too. So it's uh, it's quite similar in both northern and southern hemispheres. There have been sightings of the Loch Ness Monster for hundreds of years. Would that suggest that uh, there have been many of these creatures in Loch Ness uh, all reproducing? Well, there has to be a breeding population because it's one of the myths of cryptozoology that there's one Yeti, one Bigfoot, one Loch Ness Monster. But uh, compared to, for instance, even the Bigfoot reports, uh, with a creature in the water, there's no tracks, there's no physical evidence, and it's really uh, the eyewitness reports and the tradition. So the probability of the Loch Ness Monster is much, much lower than some of these land cryptids. Wouldn't the power of suggestion be a powerful element here? You kind of hinted at that earlier. If we're looking for something and we know what we're looking for, might our brain trick us into thinking that we saw it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, Lauren. No, go ahead. If you're thinking about, you know, when you're looking in the woods, I'll give you an example. I lived in Florida. You know, I moved from Jersey to Florida, and I lived there for 24 years before I moved here to the Midwest. When you're in, when you're near any waterways in Florida, every log looks like a gator, and a lot of times they are. <laughs> so every time I look at a log up here in Florida, I mean in, in Illinois, I immediately think at first it's, it's a gator. And then, of course, you look at clouds, and, and they become pretty much what you want them to be. You could look into the woods and do that. And, of course, one other thing is when I teach my students in journalism is don't lead people with questions is that people want to agree with you. If you say, don't you think, usually the people you're interviewing will say yes. So I think, I think power of suggestion is, is very powerful here. We uh, have to kind of end it here, but it's been fascinating. Uh, any other monsters we should be looking into? Oh, Lauren, I think the, Lauren the, the new that. Lauren, <laughs> the new the one that's going to be discovered is Orang Pendek in Sumatra. So look for in the next twenty years a brand new primate being discovered in Indonesia. Lauren Coleman is one of the world's leading cryptozoologists, director of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, author of a number of books. Joe Gisandi is a professor of journalism at Eastern Illinois University, author of a book called Monster Trek, The Obsessive Search for Bigfoot. And uh, I thank both of you so much for being on our show today. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope the audience has figured out that this was not an April Fool's hoax. This was the real deal. <laughs> Thanks so thank much, you Lana. for having me. Yeah.